Yeah, I think sometimes in religious attitudes, there's this idea that, that God is a divine being, but he's also sort of your manservant who can abide, who, who holds your political beliefs and will will a- answer your requests when, in fact, the Bible itself states very clearly that, that um, time and chance happeneth to us all. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode is a sequel of sorts to my previous episode when I talked to Hala Alyan about the benefits of narrative therapy. This time I talked to travel writer Jeffrey Taylor, and we don't discuss refining your own narrative for therapy so much as returning to the great stories of history to help make sense of difficulty and mortality in your own life. As Jeff explains in the interview, he lost both of his parents in recent years, and not long ago he suffered a neurological condition where he briefly lost all sight in one eye. As this happened, he found himself turning to the wisdom of, among other things, the writing of Dante and the book of Ecclesiastes from the Bible, both of which have religious components, though Jeff is not himself religious. If you're not familiar with the work of Jeffrey Taylor, he's a National Geographic correspondent who's written several classic travel books like Siberian Dawn and Chasing the Congo. His newest book is In Putin's Footsteps, which aims to help make sense of Russia and its history and its culture for people who only know about it through media and political stereotypes. I've known Jeff for nearly 20 years now. He's an intense guy to talk to and an old-school travel writer who goes from place to place slowly, learning new languages as he goes and reporting on everything he sees. He's a person who's without a doubt endeavored to make the most of his days and live a life less ordinary, and in practice he certainly does that. But what happens when, during a life you're trying to live in an extraordinary way, you find yourself confronting a sense of decline? That's exactly what Jeffrey and I talk about in the context of literature and how it can console us. Please note that this episode was cut down from a longer interview, and we often make reference to his L.A. Review of Books essay about Ecclesiastes. I put a link to that in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. I recommend that you listen to this in tandem with my earlier episode with Hala Alyan about narrative therapy. You might listen to her episode first, since it's more applicable in a self-help way, whereas this conversation has more difficult concept and prescription. Our interview starts with me talking with Jeffrey about his early conviction to live his own life as if he were a protagonist in a novel. Let's listen in. In your very first interview with me, and I'm not sure how long ago it's been, it's been at least 18 years, you said to me, my writing derived from the conviction that I conceived during my college years. One should lead one's life as if one were the protagonist of an epic novel with the outcome predetermined and chapter after chapter of edifying, traumatic, and exhilarating events to be suffered through. Since the end is known in advance, one must try to experience as much as possible in the brief time allotted, and writing is a way of ensuring that you pay enough attention along the way to understand what you see. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's pretty much what I've done. And uh, I suppose at the moment, I don't feel there are so many regions of the world left that I would like to see. I've been to, I suppose I could say I've been to um, pretty much everywhere I want to go. So now I go back to places that mean something to me. And uh, that's basically what my life is now doing. If I travel, it's to go someplace that I, I may be learning new things or studying something new but probably it's not going to be new for me in the way that it's certainly not the way it would have been when I actually was in my college years and preparing to set out. Uh, in, in some of your recent writings, uh, including writings about 
the book of Ecclesiastes uh, for the LA Review of Books, which I found really interesting. You touch on the idea of the mortality of your own parents, and then also uh, your own physical limitations with health problems that have come up recently. So how have those recent life changes affected your way of, of viewing things and being in the world? Uh, well, yeah, the I lost my mother in 2005, very suddenly. Uh, it was the proverbial phone call at two in the morning. And she had been a little sick with the flu or something, but then she had a massive heart attack and died um, in her kitchen alone. Um, so that was the first time I was really confronted with it. My grandparents had died earlier, of course, but they were very aged, so I took it in stride. Um, but the death of a mother is is extremely traumatic. Um, and my father continued on up until uh, 2017 and died. And even his absence, though, he had a very gradual diminution with some minor strokes that he had that debilitated him both physically and mentally. Um, it was still a shock to lose him. Uh, so I, these were not intimations of mortality. They were, they were um, blunt statements of mortality that impinged on my life. Uh, and it does, people say, if you don't have children, it means a lot more to you when your parents die. And that seems to be the case because we don't have children. So when you lose parents, you lose your, you lose a tie you have to your own past, but at the same time, you don't have children to look forward to their growing up. Uh, so now I think that I, oh, and you asked about my health. Well, yeah, in the last couple of years, uh, I've had a, a neurological condition that resulted in my losing my sight in my left eye, which was restored luckily with steroid transfusions. Um, but it hasn't affected my mor my mobility, uh, and you wouldn't notice any difference in me. But because of losing sight suddenly over the course of a few days um, in one eye, thankfully only one, uh, really drove home how fragile things were. How have you turned to and used literature to help navigate these new developments and these new parts of your life? Well, um, first of all, to, to Ecclesiastes, which I would recommend everybody read in the King James Version. Um, I also have the Geneva Bible Version, which preceded it, um, that has a lot to be said. That's the Bible of Milton and Shakespeare, the Geneva Bible. Huh. Um, so it's worth reading if you want to see what Bible Shakespeare or, and Milton, obviously, much more so than Shakespeare, um, makes use of in his work. Um, Ecclesiastes, which is is probably the the book in the Bible that um, most uh, remains relevant, and I can read it. And I think you told me at another point that you'd read it throughout your life, and I have too. And at one point, it seems like at a younger age, it seems like it's a book about things that haven't yet happened, but it prepares you. And then when they have happened, the deaths of relatives, uh, it's consoling. And it's a very mournful, um, consoling book for which you don't need religious faith to appreciate. Uh, you don't need religious faith to appreciate it. Um, it's more, it seems more like based on ideas that were 
I, I don't think the author of Ecclesiastes, if it was Solomon or whoever it was, could have been acquainted with Greek philosophy, but there are echoes of Epicurus in it. Um, and the whole idea that live for, live for now, um, eat, drink, and be merry is a, is a direct quote from the King James Version. Um, enjoy your, your wife, enjoy your youth. Um, keep in mind that the, I think they call the writer or the, the preacher as he calls himself, um, keep in mind that evil days will come that when you will take no pleasure in them, that those things are very true. No matter how we live, no matter how well we try to live, no matter in some cases, how superficially people try to live, avoiding those topics, they end up on rushing at some point in life. I think it's interesting that you make no secret that you're an atheist, yet um, obviously the Ecclesiastes is right in the heart of the Bible. So for for my listeners who might also be unbelievers or atheists, as well as people who are, are people of faith and might not appreciate some of the existential aspects of, of this scripture, how, how would you recommend approaching a book like Ecclesiastes? Um, well, get the King James Version. It's much more available than the Geneva Bible Version. And you can read the whole thing in one sitting. It's not very long. I think there are 12 chapters, as it were. Um, and it's immediately gripping the the first the lines about the passage of time about there being a time to be happy a time to be sad a time to plant things a time to reap th- plants uh, uh, are, are going to be some of the most recognizable because um, of, because of the bird song right the the uh, turn 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 right. Yeah, a direct echo of of, uh, of Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I had I hadn't thought of that song in in years and years. Um, but it's something that it speaks to everybody because it doesn't require that you follow a story to, to the extent that say if you're reading Genesis it does, or you're reading the the Gospels. You're following a story with a, with an outcome you know in advance, of course. Um, but in this case, you could dip in anywhere and enjoy and get something out of it, and it's consoling. Um, you can read it, you know, before you go to sleep at night. Uh, it's certainly it's certainly the meaning changes for you with each decade. I would say it gets better as you age. I have a somewhat uh, embarrassed question for you. Uh, because I read it, and in fact, I have my old my old Lutheran Confirmation Bible sitting on my desk right now, open to Ecclesiastes. It's it's the NIV. It's the New International Version. What does the King James uh, version offer that uh, that a sort of a more vernacular uh, translation 
like the the NIV, NIV might not offer. And, and for, for, for my listeners who are not familiar with the Bible, it's been translated dozens of times over the centuries, uh, and each translation has, a, has its own specific name and sometimes its own specific agenda. The King James uh, Bible came out during the era of King James hundreds of years ago and is probably the most popular and often the most poetic, whereas the NIV, I'm not sure when that came around, maybe the 1960s or 70s, and it's more plain-spoken English. So what's your argument for why the King James version of Ecclesiastes is the best one to read? Well, the the very first line of Ecclesiastes, which I think everybody will will know, um, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's the most, uh, probably one of the most quoted lines of the Bible anywhere. A vanity in the sense of uh, it's actually the uh, Hebrew. This is the Old Testament, so it's translation from Hebrew. Um, the word was actually hevel, hevel, which means breath or vapor. So not vanity in the sense of personal conceit, but futility. Now I've seen translations of the Bible where vanity of vanity, uh, all is vanity, is translated as. It's everything is useless, useless, making making it sound really it's obviously more comprehensible, but there's no poetry in it. Actually, in case, I'm, I'm looking at the NIV version. It says meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is utterly meaningless. So um, that sounds closer to the more pragmatic version as opposed to the more poetic version. Yeah, and I, I think that for people who are reading literature um, in English— uh, the great poets that followed the publication of the King James Bible, I think it was in 1604, or 1609 or something, um, will, will find echoes throughout literature. And yet, uh, an astonishing poem that everybody should read, believe it or not, is Paradise Lost by John Milton. And that was based more on the, on the Geneva Bible, but the, the, the figure of Satan, the, the majesty of the verse uh, is, is just astonishing. It's obviously one of the greatest works of world literature. And uh, their Ecclesiastes will not uh, do you much good because M Milton is dealing with um, the fall of Satan. Uh, you know, that it's completely different. But for those of a philosophical mind or, or wanting consolation, I don't think there's anything better to read than, than Ecclesiastes. Yeah, it feels like it's interesting that we live in an era now where there is no short of inf of information. There's there's lots of what you could call noise, and there's lots of little little snippets of words and memes that are meant to be consoling. But there's something to be said uh, for old wisdom as well. Uh, and so, specifically in recent years, how has Ecclesiastes served you uh, in terms of how it has comforted you? Well, I think because. Losing parents um, is something that you know, it obviously remains with you forever. The the themes, the the eternal themes, and the atmosphere when you read through Ecclesiastes um, is consoling. I, I don't know. I, I think I, I probably have said <laughs> repeated this a, a couple of times, but basically the the book is a is a very consoling read. But it's a, a consoling read, and not in the sense that it just gives you some comfort, but that it helps you accept truths 
that were true for the writer of Ecclesiastes, whether it was King Solomon or you know, 900 years before Christ or, or not, I don't know, but that's the idea. The author is apparently the son of King David. Um, so those themes have always been true. And in our tradition, in the Western tradition, they were first put into words, as far as I can tell, by Ecclesiastes. And we talk about Greeks and others who were um, coming. Ecclesiastes may also have been written just a few hundred years before uh, Christ. But it's if it were written in the 900 years before, then it would be one of the first works, whereas Homer... Um, Homer, of course, doesn't give you this kind of philosophy. And uh, the other Greeks obviously do. They gave us the word philosophy and they gave us the greatest philosophers. But um, it's more abstract. It's more rational, uh, less laden with emotion. That is the Greek the Greek versions of you know, whether you're reading Plato or, or others. Um, and then the, the other, the stark realism of Ecclesiastes, which is apparent when you read through it, you do find in Epicurus, for instance, uh, with the idea that death is final, that our life is to be enjoyed here and now, that we should live free from, I think he, he has two words, ataraxia, which means uh, sort of tranquility, and uh, aponia, which means living with oh, painlessness. So you try to have a tranquil life without pain, and that should be the ideal. Well, I think that's a, those are pretty good maxims as things go. And, 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 but yet we do have pain. We do have um, agitation. We are, we are stressed. And reading Ecclesiastes addresses it a little more, and it's more calming. It's interesting, I think, that oftentimes when you hear very religious people talk about Scripture, it's often framed more in terms of certainties. Um, and I guess certainties might serve a certain psychological purpose, but one book, one part of Ecclesiastes that I'll always remember, and I think maybe for whatever reason I remember the King James Version rather than the NIV Version, is the idea that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to yeah. the strong, nor wisdom yet to men, uh, to men of learning, but time and chance happeneth to us all, which is such an embrace of the uncertainty of life. Yeah, that's that's probably the the second most uh, remembered part, and it certainly is the part that bluntly states the truth. And we can all think of examples of that, of young people who died in their prime, um, of people who were completely unworthy, who lived on and, and prospered, being evil. <laughs> you know, so they're, they're definitely the, that line and the, the, that spirit pervades pervades the, the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, I think sometimes in religious attitudes there's this idea that, that God is a divine being, but he's also sort of your manservant who can abide, who, who holds your political beliefs and will, will answer your requests, when in fact the Bible itself states very clearly that, that um, time and chance happeneth to us all. Um, so Ecclesiastes notwithstanding, I know you're working on a book about Dante's Divine Comedy, and I know that you're very vested in literature. So in what other ways have you used and do you use literature to make sense of your life? First of all, you, you understand immediately that Dante is entering a midlife crisis. Hmm. He's 35. 
his beloved has died, Beatrice, who appears um, eventually in, in, purg in purgatory. Um, but he's lost. And he's reached the point where he doesn't know why he's alive. And he comes across Virgil, Roman poet, who for Dante epitomizes reason and rational thought of the Roman era before the Christian era began. So there's a, there's a real interesting contradiction there, but Dante manages it. And so the book eventually, it's essentially, you could say, a trip through midlife depression into meeting God in the very end. But um, if you don't believe, you can, you can just say it's towards a state of enlightenment in which you, you can accept things, you can accept your life as a journey, as, as ending it, that may, in fact, get better, even if you physically deteriorate. Some listeners might feel a little overwhelmed because we're talking about a lot of books that they haven't read yet. I think a lot of people these days find their wisdom in little bite-sized chunks online or in, or in books that are more packaged for self-help. For, for, so for somebody who wants to dive deep into this kind of literature, what would either be an approach to or a strategy for uh, embracing these deeper and, and more ancient ideas as a way to get, get perspective on your own life? Well, I think that if you if you start by saying you're going to read authors who are no longer here, you can go to European literature, go to American literature of the 19th century. Um, I would definitely say get Walden's Thoreau. Um, excuse me, get uh, Henry David Thoreau's Walden and start possibly there. He has a very strong appreciation for the classics. He makes repeated references to them and quotes from Latin and, and Greek classics. Um, and you can, you can use that book. That was an extremely important book to me in my first years. Um, I guess probably starting in my junior year, or maybe it was my, maybe it was my freshman year in college. Um, and then there are, there are authors like Tolstoy. Uh, and I would say there, the death of Ivana Leach is a good book to uh, a good novella to read. It's, it addresses all the themes we've been talking about. Um, and Anna Karenina, which is probably the greatest novel that I, that I know of. It feels like maybe understanding that it's going to take a while is probably also something to, to keep in mind, that it's not something that you, you read one book and it's over, but it, it becomes a part of your, your intellectual practice. Yeah, well, I think you, you address that in Vagabonding, that um, in your book that I think all your readers will know, and which I read um, of course, when, in fact, I think I have a quote on the back of the book. I think you have a blurb uh, on the book. Yeah. Yeah. Endorsing it because such a wonderful book, but it, it's a book of opening doors, not a book of telling you exactly what to do, but a book of opening doors for yourself, um, that people can use or people can turn to, um, especially if they need a change in their life. And I have never been a self-help book reader. Um, so I always went the long way of going through the literature or going to the, tra doing the traveling and trying to meet people that taught me things. And now my whole life is abroad. Obviously I live in, in Russia, um, and I'm married to a Russian. So I think going the longer route through literature is, is going to be ultimately much more satisfying, but I, I, I do have a harder time with 
um, the idea of people going online and searching for, I, I think it's somehow very disorienting to switch and jump around online. Well, I think that's a good metaphor to keep in mind. Um, I think there's often this emphasis to, to find answers when, in fact, maybe opening doors is what we really should be doing. To everything, turn, And deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Jeffrey Taylor's books and his essays about Ecclesiastes and the writings of Dante, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. To everything, turn, 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 there is a sea.